I don't know how many of you have had the privilege of being up here during worship, but there's something about being up here when backstage you can hear all of your voices being lifted to the Lord. It's a pretty sacred thing just to hear the church worship God. This morning, I want to invite you to turn with me and to continue in that attitude of worship. I want, to, want you to turn with me, invite you to turn with me if you brought over to Ezekiel 37. We've been journeying together through this uh, Water for the Way series in our time of Lent and been digging into God's Word. And most of those have come, uh, most of the sermons have come from the Gospels. But this morning, as I was preparing and as I've been thinking about this and thinking about this whole message for this week, it just seemed to me that the thing that we might want to hear this morning is a little bit different. And so I just want to invite you this morning, could we just take a moment and just allow the Holy Spirit to fall upon our hearts? And just where you are, if you could just in silence lift your voice to the Lord. Thank him for the opportunity to gather in this place. Thank him for the opportunity just to hear again the community of faith gathered to worship and honor him. Thank him this morning for the word and the work of his Holy Spirit who in these next few moments will speak to our hearts. And then would you just ask the Lord this morning to take away all the distractions of these moments together. And all the plans for later today and this week and help us just to focus upon him this morning. And Lord, I pray for myself this morning that you would get me out of the way and that, Lord, you would speak today. <clears throat> that, Lord, in these moments, your word would be heard in our ears. And Lord, we would walk away from here today not feeling different because something the preacher said, but being different because we've encountered your Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, would you just speak, we pray. Amen. A few years back, I was deeply impacted by a passage from a book. And uh, I was, as I was reading that book at the time, I still to this moment don't know exactly what it was that caused that impact to be so deep. Maybe it was the circumstance that I was in at the time. Maybe it was just the season of life that I was in. Or maybe it was this shift in seeing the world in a different way. 
while I'm still not sure even to this moment what it was, that story seems to pop back up over the last few years. A little bit at a time, at different places, this story seems to rush back to my mind. And this week, as I was thinking about this passage, this story came flooding back. And while I was tempted to read the the entire story to you, I won't do that, but I did want to share a short passage. This book is written by Don Miller. It's a book entitled uh, A a Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in that book, he tells of a story of him, an encounter that he and his friend had. (laughs) Don writes, When I got back from Los Angeles, I got together with my friend Jason, who has a 13-year-old daughter. He was feeling down because he and his wife had found pot in the daughter's closet. She was dating a guy too, a kid who smelled like smoke and only answered questions in one-word answers. Like, yeah, and no, and whatever. And the one that really grated on Jason's nerve the most, why? And Jason would say to him, have her home by 10. And the guy would say, why? Jason figured this guy was the reason why his daughter was experimenting with drugs. You thinking about grounding her, I ask? Not allowing her to date him? We've tried that, Jason replied, but it's only gotten worse. He shook his head and fidgeted his fingers on the table. Then I said something that caught his attention. I said his daughter was living a terrible story. What do you mean, he asked. I love Don's candor here. He says, I don't know exactly, but just not living a good story. She's caught up in a bad one. I told him all the stuff that I had learned about the elements of a good story and how it involved the character who wanted something and overcomes conflict Even as I said this, I wasn't sure exactly how this applied to his story. He said, we kept talking. We talked probably for an hour or more. And I just figured that Jason wanted to know more about why some stories hit home and some movies landed well, while others simply didn't. I didn't think much about it. I just figured he was curious about movies. A couple of months later, I ran into Jason, Don writes, and ask about his daughter. She's better, he said, smiling. And when I asked, he told me his family was now living a better story. I know that little part might not impact you deeply, but I believe as humans, we are story creatures. Think for a moment. How do we tell about life's experiences? How do you tell about something that you've been through? How do you share your deepest wants, the longings of your heart? Most often, if not always, that's through story. Our brains have have evolved to such a point that story is the main way we think about the world. We are constantly trying to make sense of the world in which we live, and we find ourselves making stories fit. Even when we don't have all of the details, or even enough details to, uh, to, to, to make something make sense, we'll make up some details. Ever been there? 
I don't know about you, I can be sitting at a traffic light and I look over the car next to me and there's this guy who has the longest face. And in my mind, my mind begins to make up a story. That dude's had a bad day at work. Or maybe his wife's told him that they're done. Or maybe he just found out something horrible about his mother. I don't know what it is. It may be nothing. He may be in deep thought, but I've figured it out in about three short sentences. Do you know what I mean? We just come up with story. You see somebody driving down the road, you see them in your rearview mirror, and you think, what in the world are they doing? Okay, I'm going to get over so they don't run into me. And they come flying past you, and you think, this person has lost their mind. Until I stop to think that maybe they're on the way to the hospital because their loved one is in need. Or maybe they've gotten a call from their wife, and the thing they dreaded most has happened. I have an option in that moment. Either they're a maniac who's out to kill me or there's a really good reason why they're acting the way they do. You know, I think Don was right when he said that Jason's daughter was living in a story that wasn't a good story. While it had some elements of good story, a family, a life, she had found that part of that story wasn't impactful enough. And she went looking for a different story. She went looking for a story that had more adventure, an element that was missing for her. I believe the stories of character we're going to look at in a moment are not all that dissimilar. In a moment, we're going to look over to Ezekiel 37, probably the most popular passage of that entire book. And if we're not careful and we just lift that story out of the context of the book, we do the passage a complete injustice. The context of Ezekiel and his fellow Israelites make the story make sense. But in the proper context, this story becomes a turning point for the people of Israel. <laughs> Let me get there this morning. Ezekiel and his contemporaries find themselves living in a time of a divided Israel. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. After King Solomon was the king, the, the kingdom divided into ten tribes in the north and two in the south. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel, and the two tribes in the south took the name Judah. The northern kingdom had wicked king after wicked king, and all of God's attempt to call these people back failed. They decided that they would rather pursue the idols of the land, of the people in, which, who's in their land that they were living. And in time, the Assyrians sweep down from the north and conquer this northern kingdom. For a while... As a matter of fact, probably by the time of Ezekiel, almost a hundred years had passed with the northern kingdom of Israel under the thumb of the Assyrians. While the southern kingdom fared better, it still had plenty of problems. Some of the kings were wicked, and like the north, would try to lead the kingdom of Judah astray. And then they would get a kingdom who would sort of steer the nation back on the course, back and forth, waffling between these two options, the southern kingdom of Judah went. And Babylon would come 
sweeping from the north and not only take over Assyria, but the northern kingdom of Israel. While the Assyrians tried to fight back and even Egypt tried a few times to put up an uprising against the Babylonians, the Babylonians were strong and were quickly able to put those nations down. And it wasn't long before Babylon came knocking on the door of Judah. And in time, Babylon sacks the capital of Judah. And it didn't take long for, for Babylon to take over all of Judah. Babylon was like, you know what? I don't know really what to do with these Israelites down here. So they set up this vassal king, this under king, if you will, by the name of Jehoiakim. He was really a puppet king for Babylon. But Jehoiakim thought, you know what we should do? We should, um, we should start an uprising and try to take our country back. It didn't take long, as if an ant had started to crawl onto Babylon and just flicked that uprising right on down. And Babylon was like, well, what do we do with these people? What do we do with them? How are we going to continue to make these people behave now that they're Babylonians? And so what Babylon decided to do is it took a group from the, town, from the area of Judah and began to distribute them all over the kingdom of Babylon. It's called the exile. And Babylon had said, you know what, enough of this nonsense. We're just going to take these people and disperse them everywhere. And you know what? It won't be a problem because they won't be able to organize. You recognize there was no cell phones and internet back then, right? They can't call up and say, hey, listen, we're meeting. Didn't happen like that. Ezekiel was part of that first group that was sort of taken away from Judah. And God began to call Ezekiel. Speak to my people and tell them again that they need to walk away from all the idols. Walk away. They're broken. They cannot do this on their own. Ten years later, a second rebellion against Babylon occurs. And when Babylon responds by destroying Jerusalem, it only took down, not only took down Jerusalem, but he exiled most of those people, and it burned the temple. It destroyed the temple. The popular prophet at the time were claiming these false hope that, that, that Jerusalem would remain. Jerusalem's going to survive. Just hang on. Jerusalem's going to make it. And when Babylon came knocking the second time, they utterly destroyed Jerusalem. And they took these, the rest of the people and they scattered them. And Ezekiel's message is basically this. Listen, God's presence has already left the temple. What, what, what is happening is judgment for our inability to continue to follow God in the midst of hard circumstances. Listen, Israel. Listen. When Jerusalem is burned, Ezekiel's prophecies shift, no longer describing the horrible judgment, but now responding to a fundamental question the exiles were asking. And our passage today is located right in the middle of it. 
It's in this post-temple era, post-temple destruction era, that our passage comes. I want you to think for a moment what it would be like to be one of those exiles. Today, we round up half of you, and we move you, I don't know, to Siberia. And we round up another part of you, half of what's remaining, and we send you to Afghanistan. And the other part of you, we send you somewhere in South America. How disturbing would it be for you if almost overnight, everything that you knew was gone? Living in an odd place, eating different food, living by a different culture, oftentimes not knowing all of the language, not the customs, not understanding. Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Ezekiel, calls their situation a psychological horror. I think that's pretty accurate. Can we agree together that Israel is living in a bad story? Maybe as much or worse than Jason's daughter was living. People needed a change in their story. If they were going to somehow be able to survive and live out the call of God upon their life, which, by the way, was for them to be representatives of God and his love to the entire world. It is into this context that this passage for this morning comes. And Ezekiel offers this vision in Ezekiel 37. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. The Lord's power overcame me. While I was in the Lord's spirit, he led me out and set me down in the middle of a certain valley. It was full of bones. He led me through them all around. And I saw that there were a great many of them on the valley floor, and they were very, very dry. He asked me, human one, can these bones live again? I said, Lord God, only you know. He said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the, Lord, the, the Lord's word. The Lord God proclaims to these bones, I am about to put breath in you, and you will live again. I will put sinews on you and place flesh on you and cover you with skin. When I put breath in you, you come to life. You will know that I am the Lord. I prophesied just as I was commanded. There was a great noise as I was prophesying. Then a great quaking. And the bones came together, bone by bone. When I looked, suddenly there was sinew on them. The flesh appeared. And then they were covered over with skin but there was still no breath in them. He said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, human one, say to the breath, the Lord proclaims, come from the four winds, breathe. Breathe into these dead bodies. Let them live. 
I prophesied just as he commanded me. When their breath entered in, they came to life and stood on their feet, an extraordinary large company. Can you imagine? Let me just pause there for a second. Can you imagine this thing that Ezekiel had seen in this vision? These bones begin to quake, and there's this loud noise of bones coming back together, and there is this reanimation of, 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 of muscle and sinew and tissue and then skin. And at first, those bodies aren't animated. <laughs> and then the Lord says, prophesy again. And the Lord calls the winds to breathe, and into this great army, the breath comes. And they live. Verse 11. He said to me, human one, these bones are the entire house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up. Our hope has perished. We are completely finished. So now prophesy and say to them, the Lord proclaims, I'm opening your graves. I will raise you up from your graves, my people. I will bring you to Israel's fertile land. You will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise, your, raise you up from your graves, my people, I will put breath in you and you will live. I will plant you on your fertile land. You will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. This is what the Lord says. I don't know about the rest of you, but when I think about this, I think what a strange vision. The power of God overcomes the prophet and he sees something miraculous on its face. God marches the prophet out to this valley. Notice he doesn't look from above. He doesn't stand on a cliff looking down into the valley. The Lord marches him through the valley. By the way, did you know that that would have made Ezekiel unclean? The Old Testament, people aren't allowed to be around dead bodies. But God takes him and does something that no other force can do. Nothing can make that happen. God takes Ezekiel through this place that would have been unclean. He wouldn't have been able to come to the community to worship. Ezekiel sees something that only God can do. The language is clear. God doesn't just show him the valley. He wants him to walk through the valley. I want you to experience. I want you to see. I want you to know what it's like, Ezekiel. Because I'm going to do something with these old, dried up, good for nothing bones. I mean, we're not talking about stuff of the walking dead, folks. We're not talking about still some skin and muscle. We're talking about bones of people who have been dead long time. And God, God says to him, Ezekiel, 
Can these bones live again? I love how Ezekiel hedges his bet. Um, Lord, only you know. Great answer, by the way. I wouldn't have been as smart as Ezekiel was. I probably would have given this look to God like, what are you up to? I, I might have said something real smart like, duh. I mean, the answer is clear. No, dead bones can't live again. It doesn't happen. But God is saying, with me, all things are possible. Verse 4, he said, prophesy over the bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I love this. Do you know how God made creation? He spoke. Here God is doing this same thing again. All he has to do is speak and it happens. That's power. The Lord proclaims to these bones, I am about to put breath in you and will give you life again. When God shows up, what seems impossible suddenly becomes possible. We're partially there. The bodies have skin and muscle and bones. They're put back together. And then again, he says to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, O human one. Say to the breath, the Lord proclaims, come from the four winds. Breathe into these dead bodies and let them live. How many of you know nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, is impossible with God? Uh, you'll have to forgive me. The old Nazarene in me, when I start talking about God doing the impossible, runs back to an old course we used to sing years ago. It says, nothing is impossible when you put your trust in God. Anybody remember that little chorus? Nothing is impossible when you're trusting in his word. Church, can I tell you this morning? Nothing is impossible with God. You're sitting there. I, are you asleep? Nothing is impossible with God. Thank you. Not for me, for him. Praise him. Nothing to do with the preacher. The message is clear to Israel. Israel, don't give up. I'm not done with you. Be patient. There's still work to be done. Things look hopeless. Things look impossible. From the looks of it, you have no hope. But guess what? God! Even when it looks impossible, when God shows up, nothing is impossible. Can, church, can I say to you this morning, this is not just the story of Israel. It's also our story, church. This is our story. Over the last few weeks as we've walked through Lent, we've, talking, we've talked about our brokenness. 
We talked about our failure. We talked about our shortcoming. We talked about our short-sightedness. Do you remember all the way back to Ash Wednesday? Just a few weeks ago, we said together, we are utterly broken and hopeless. We can't get out of our own way. But God. God, when he shows up, can do the impossible. Lord, church, I can't speak for anyone else. But I have to confess to you this morning, I sometimes have to think, God, what are you doing? It seems impossible. How is this going to happen? I don't know how it's going to happen. It seems on my own I'm completely unredeemable. But how many of you know this morning that when God shows up, nothing is impossible? How many of you this morning need God to do something that seems impossible in your life or in your family or with your friends or in your work situation? Can I tell you this morning, nothing is impossible with God, church, for us personally, and for us corporately. We serve a God who's able to take old, dry, dead bones and make them live again. If he can do that, what is it that he can't do, church? What is it that he can't do? God is able this morning. You know what? We sang it before I came out. We sang Waymaker, Miracle Worker, Light in the Darkness. On this journey of Lent, that's who He is. In our everyday life, that's who He is. Church, in two weeks, we'll celebrate Easter. We're going to celebrate Jesus being resurrected. By the way, I'm, it, I should have told you it's a spoiler alert, but if you hadn't been around here long enough to know what happens on Easter, I'm sorry. But you know what? The same God who raised Jesus from the grave, the same Spirit who called Him forth out of that grave can do the same thing for you and I. And I'm just crazy enough to believe this morning that maybe He wants to do that. I want to take just a moment. If you would, just where you are, would you just close your head? I mean, close your eyes and bow your head with me this morning. <laughs> I don't know if God's speaking to someone. But one of the things I can affirm in the Church of the Nazarene is the altars are always open. And if God's speaking to you this morning about something in your life, something in your family, something in your work situation, something that your friend is dealing with, there's, there's altars here. And if God is speaking to you and you just want to come and say, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't want to put a box around what it is that you're going to do, but... Lord, I want to just 
come to you and lay the dry bones of that situation right here on the altar and say, God, do what you did in Ezekiel's time and in our life and in our family and in our job and with our friends. Is there somebody this morning that just want to take a step from where you are and just leave that at one of these altars today? I'm not going to tarry long, but I just want to give you the opportunity. I believe God's reminded us this morning that nothing is impossible with Him.